around about the time I turned 30, I thought, oh, I think I want to do something a little bit different. So I started doing uni part-time and then took a whole year off to do a full full year and got really interested in geology. And uh, I won the prize that year, which was rather fortunate, met my husband, and uh, it, the rest is history. So I was just wondering, how come pollen and geology uh, go together? Yes, and it does seem like a strange coincidence <laughs> does, of plants, plants and rocks. Yeah, but... You know, in, in the rock record, we have a record of the plants, um, the evolution of plants all the way through since they first appeared on land in uh, the late Silurian, uh, about 420, 430 million years ago. And what we have is the spores, and then later on the pollen comes. And, and the kind of pollen and spores that you have in a rock, in a sedimentary rock, tells you um, something about the plants. There. So it's so you have a certain type of pollen and spores that occur at different times in the, in the Earth's history. And we use that to date the rocks uh, for petroleum industry and mining and water exploration. So, yeah, it goes together. So there are some features of pollen that make it particularly good for this. Can you tell us a little bit about pollen? Well, pollen's actually the sperm of the plant world. It, it carries the male sex cells, and because plants... I guess in my book I have a chapter called Sex Without Legs and uh, Aristotle many, several thousand years ago didn't believe that plants actually um, sexually reproduced because they were non-motorised and you know they couldn't walk towards their mate, they couldn't choose their mate. Uh, but plants have devised this wonderful way of uh, producing lots and lots of pollen or spores uh, which are distributed by wind or animals and uh, eventually some of them actually get lucky and, uh, but most of the pollen and spores actually fall down to the ground and just become part of soil and dust. And uh, they've got a really, really hardy outer shell. I mean, it's actually a, it's a single cell, and the protoplasm inside contains the male sex cells. But on the outside, the, it, which is the bit that we actually, the cell wall that we actually study, um, is uh, very ornate. You know, there's... Um, they have little openings for the male sex cells to come out of, so there's lots of different kinds of openings. And then the surface of them uh, may have spines or, or lovely uh, net-like um, structures. Very, very beautiful. And, and each species has its own kind of pollen. So it's a bit like plants. Each plant, a, a botanist can, can tell a plant because of its usually reproductive features and, and so on. Um, with pollen, again, it's just an, another form of identifying a plant in a sense. So in the book there's some wonderful photos that you've acquired of the uh, pollen themselves and they yeah. look like tessellations, these geometric patterns. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's just beautiful. Um, the pollen grains themselves, are, are, they have lots of different, they're sort of geometric shapes, but let's say if you've got a triangle, you know, you have a triangle that's got... Um, convex sides or concave sides or pointy ends and so on so yeah there's lots of different shapes lots and sizes the wall structure the apertures the holes and the slits that that help us to identify pollen what, um, what i didn't realize lynn was how recent the science was uh, in terms of being able to identify um, the plants that the pollen came from you explained beautifully in your book 
um, how, in fact, microscopy, you know, different microscopic techniques have enabled a better uh, look at these very small pollens uh, and enabled you to be able to identify which plants they came from. Could you tell us a little bit more about that really quite recent evolution of, uh, of, well, I guess, machinery, technology and knowledge? Well, 150, 200 years ago, the microscopes came along. Um, there was lots of... I think I do talk about it in my book. I should read it again tonight. And people looked at lots of small things. In those days, scientists were chemists, they were botanists, they were geologists, they, and, and the microscope was used to look at lots of different things, and, and they did actually look at a pond. And uh, they, they originally used to describe them in terms of things that we see today as, as in a round of butter and, and things like that. Mm. And then it wasn't until the, about the 1940s and 50s that it was actually started to be used as, as a tool. I think in 1916 um, it was mentioned as, as being um, a possible tool for looking at the changes in um, the, the pollen record in in late to sort of work out how things had changed over time and it wasn't really until it became a tool for the petroleum industry that it became something that you know people did and and worked at and were paid money for doing so and then of course microscopy has just become so much more uh, more advanced I mean with an electron microscope it's just just wonderful every time I put a new pollen um, species onto a, a electron microscope, and you know you you, you focus it up, and mm-hmm. and and then you go, oh wow, you know, because it was always something different and beautiful. Yeah. I, I like that. Uh, I was interviewing a professor of astronomy the other day, and I asked him. You know, when you look at those pictures coming back from the Cassini space station, you know, the, the, and, and what does it look like when you see those big glowing rings and the moons behind and the coloured bands across Saturn yeah. and so on? And you still get that excitement when you look down the electron microscope. Yes, I do. It's just, even just when I look down the light microscope, and you, you, you know, it's just exciting to see what the pollen looks like. Because obviously, um, when I do a case, and, and even when my students are doing research on lakes and things, we, we get collect the pollen from the, the different plants that occur at the scene. And I go to the herbarium and, and pick that up, and then we process it. We have to put it through various chemical procedures to remove the protoplasm on the inside and then the, the gooey stuff on the outside that sticks to insects or you know, helps them fly. And um, even then, when I, I make my slide and then first look at it down the microscope, I, I, I still go, oh, wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a wonderful feeling. Now, you talked about it in use in oil. Does yeah. it actually come out in the oil itself, or is it just in the deposits around the oil? Well, it, it has something to do with, well, there's lots of different kinds of palinols. We look at pollen, we look at spores, we look at little things called dinoflagellates, which are part of, uh, they're, they're marine and they're part of plankton and all these things help to produce the oil in fact so um, yeah so you find it in the oil as well as in the sediment so that the sediments that produce the oil are usually sort of shales and then it goes into the reservoir which is the um, usually a, a sandy thing or something that's got a lot of cracks in it um, which it 
doesn't sit in the shale because the shale usually forms a cap above the um, the oil bearing, the reservoir. So does that mean that theoretically you could be uh, in a boat around the Gulf of Mexico right now picking <laughs> up uh, pollen samples? You probably could, yes. <laughs> Um, one thing you mentioned was the protoplasms inside this little cage which protects it while it's yeah. ready. Do you know how it gets out of the its cage? For I'm not using the scientific term there. Uh, yeah. in, and then actually um, inseminates the... the lady. Yeah. yeah. Well, what happens, there's two little boys in there. I, this is when I, I talk to my students. And, and yes, I, I gave a talk, didn't I, that your mum was at. And she would have heard this story that uh, the... the the two little little male nuclei come out. One makes a what happens is the pollen grain alights onto the stigma of a, of a flower of the same species, and it recognises it and out pops one of the, the little male nuclei. Out of either a hole or a slit, we have pores and we have slits that we call colpi. And sometimes, you know, a, a pollen grain will have a lot of pores, and other times they've just got one, like grass does. And they'll come out of the one that probably is closest to the, the stigma, the stigma surface. And the first one makes a pollen tube that goes down the, the style of the, so you have the stigma style and then the ovary, which is the female part. And it forms this little canal down to, um, into the ovary and to one of the, um, the ova. So the little one that follows it is the one that fertilizes the female. And the one that makes the tube, as I understand, it joins up with other little lady ones that are sort of there together and that forms the endosperm, the bit that the seed juices when it's growing. So, yeah, it, it, I, I say it, it, it's sort of like animals in a sense. You've got a canal, a receptive organ, a canal, got uh, little boys that meet up with little girls. <laughs> Lynn, one of the challenges of your research is that has been to actually show um, the structure underneath the sticky um, surrounds of a pollen grain. Yeah. And I, I found that fascinating in your book to read that you, would, you had to develop techniques to try and remove this without yeah. damaging the structure of the pollen. Yeah. Um, and that was part of your research and uh, part of your expertise that eventually helped you crack this first of no yeah. doubt many cases. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that, the challenge as a scientist to develop a new technique to remove this outer coating of the pollen so you yeah. could use... Uh, more modern microscopy to see what was underneath? Well, the, actual pro the, the basic procedure is called acetolysis and that was developed about 50 years ago. But there's um, lots of different variations that you have to do depending on what the pollen's on. So if I've just got raw pollen from the plant, uh, what we do is we dehydrate it in acetic acid. Uh, so it goes in and gets some... Um, yeah, shake it up in a, in a centrifuge tube and then you spin it and tip off the, the supernate and then all the pollen goes down to the bottom as a little plug, what we call a little residue. So we do that several times. Now the reason we do that is because to get rid of the protoplasm and the gooey stuff on the outside, we need to use a, a fairly nasty mixture that doesn't mix with water. And it, we use nine parts of acetic anhydride, and anhydride means doesn't like water, and one part sulfuric acid and uh, when you put those two things together you have an exothermic reaction so it gets fairly hot and then you put that into and mix it up with the little plug that's down the bottom of the, the centrifuge tube and we heat that for about oh, seven or eight minutes 
and um, what that does is that eats up all that part of the um, of the pollen. And interestingly, it chews up um, organic stuff. Now, I've I've done some work, uh, uh, forensic work, where I've had a piece of clothing, and on the clothing is obviously the dirt and stuff that was there where the body was lying. But there's also the the adipose tissue, the yeah, the yucky stuff, the the part where the person's been. Um, yeah, it, it's not nice. Um, so what you've got is you've got skin cells in there as well as, as pollen. And I found that the um, acetolysis actually gets rid, of, <coughs> excuse me, gets rid of the skin as well, which is uh, quite fortunate. So it chews up organic material, but the thing is the wall of the pollen is made out of really strong biopolymer called uh, sporopollenin. And all it does to the sporopollenin is, is makes it stronger. I want to move um, back to your book, uh, A Grain of Truth, How yeah. Pollen Brought a Murderer to Justice. Lynn, this was just such a wonderful example of science communication and such an oh, enjoyable book to read. Gee, I enjoyed it. Oh, that's great. Thank you. There were so many elements that I could relate to personally. Um, you know, it was uh, a story by an Australian woman, uh, by a person who was a PhD student, by yeah. a person who was talking about the challenges of science and and finding new techniques and, and the exactness of science uh, that was required in a forensic situation. Yeah. Um, you were talking about places I knew in Queensland, yeah. Gympie and Noosa. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about two widespread acacias, um, Acacia sephora and Acacia saligna, which yeah. a lot of people would be familiar with on the coast. Um, and, of course, ultimately you were talking about pollen, which is someone who's interested in wattle myself. Yeah. Um, it was just marvellous. And now that you've, I've realised that you're a teacher, ah. some of this uh, becomes very apparent because, in fact, all my questions were answered in your book. There were no sort of questions that were arose that I couldn't find in your book. There was a wonderful glossary. There were pictures, oh. beautiful explanations of the different techniques um, that you used and also the, the history of development of these techniques. I... Well, obviously, you can tell I'm just raving about your book. I thought it was wonderful. Uh, yeah, I guess the teacher bit in me does come out, doesn't it, a little bit. Um, I didn't even know I could write. It was just one of those, those funny things I got approached to. Um, actually, what happened was uh, I had a phone call from Sydney, from Regan Holland, and um, the person said, we'd like to talk to you about a forensic book, and have you got half an hour to talk? And I said, well, no, actually, I've got to rush off, but um, I'm going to Sydney next week, you know, how about we meet up and we have a chat? And, and I think, well, this is going to be a, um, it's going to be a textbook and they want me to put a chapter in it, you know. Anyway, I met up with um, the, the publisher and we had lunch and, and we hit it off just as, as really good friends in a sense. We just had the same sense of humour and everything. And eventually I said, now, so now tell me about this book. And she said, we want you to write a science fiction book like, um, like not science fiction, a um, yeah, crime fiction like Kathy Wright's. <laughs> and I just about fell off my chair. I said, you have to be joking. I'm a scientist. I don't write fiction. <laughs> anyway, so, yes, well, we came to a compromise. You know, I said to her, look, I write good Christmas letters. Um, 
a bit Bill Bryson-ish and I like science. So, and she said, well, Bill Bryson science sounds fine to me. And uh, then she suggested that we use the Noosa case in it. And uh, that's how it sort of evolved. And they said, oh, well, you better, could you just write us uh, something that might be like a first chapter so we can see if you can write. So I ran off what turned out to actually be the first chapter in a day and uh, sent it off and they came back and said, right, let's go for it. So, yeah. <laughs> I know. The first chapter was the easiest to write after that. I mean, I just wrote it for fun, you know. You know what I really, really liked more than anything was your absolute honesty about... <laughs> yourself um, as a as a PhD student, yeah. uh, the challenges you faced, uh, the people that you um, met and talked with and needed help mm-hmm. from, it, the, your honesty um, I thought was just so enjoyable and refreshing and revealing. Yeah, I, I guess I had to admit I do things wrong sometimes. Um, <laughs> it's the way it is, you know. This is how we find things out, you know, how things work by making mistakes. Yes, um, and that's what I think what I did find um, refreshing as a scientist too because uh, um, I've always felt that you can help others by talking about what didn't work. Yeah. And yet a lot of people feel uncomfortable doing that. And uh, just as a bit of a sexist comment here, I often think women are more upfront. Yeah. About being honest about what goes wrong. Yeah, we don't have to um, have this image of being strong and always right. <laughs> right all the time. Mm. Yeah. Well, well, you're listening to the Fuzziologic Science Show here on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. My name is Rod, and special guest today is Dr. Lynn Milne, author of A Grain of Truth, and also almost Dr. Suzette Searle. And we're going to break to a track. This one is a bit of Sky. Do you remember Sky, Lynn? Yes, I do. Okay, well, I hope you enjoy this one, and we'll be back in a moment. We're going to talk about pollen as used in forensics in a moment when we come back here on 2XX. And you're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Community 98.3 FM 2XX. And... My name is Rod, and special guest today is Dr. Lynn Milne from the West Australia Curtin University and author of A Grain of Truth. And also very pleased to say, back onto Fuzzy Logic after an extended leave is Dr. Almost Dr. Uh, yeah, she submitted her PhD, so I'm going to call you Dr. I Su- think you can. Yeah, I think that's worthy of a doctor. Yeah. Suzette Searle, and a wattle expert. Now, uh, Lynn. When actually, there's a personal connection I have with this story here, in a way, a rather odd coincidence of events, because last week in Belconnen, uh, over the road, not a hundred metres from my house, they found a body in the creek. Oh, really? Yeah, and it was quite odd because I'm a bit of a photographer and I was running oh. around the street with my camera and everything, and the roads blocked and I thought, and people with clipboards and things, and I thought, oh. oh real estate agents parking their car all over the road and then as I approached they said no sir you can't come this way and then I realised they were police and uh, somebody had died in the creek at about 4am there'd been a party and so on I don't know much about the specifics of it so I have a personal connection with your book in that sense 
But what I want to ask you is, can you tell us a little bit about the general procedures that are, are followed when a scene is found? It may be a crime scene, or in this case, mm-hmm. it appears not to have been. What, what happens? What do the police do? Well, it's, a, it's an ordinary policeman that's, that's called to the scene, and it's not a, <coughs> excuse me, scenes of crime or a detective and so on. Excuse me, I've got a bit of a croaky voice here. <coughs> Sorry. Mm-hmm. They won't actually go in and, and start pulling bushes off if there's bushes over a body or anything like that. They secure the crime scene, which means that they don't allow passers-by or anybody else into the area because... The tiniest bit of... It's very, very easy just to tread on evidence that might be a little track that, that uh, the body's being dragged through or something a, a twig's being cracked and so on. So they secure the area and uh, then in comes the scenes of crime, please. It's a little bit different in, in each state. Uh, sometimes they have... Scene of crime, police are called stockos. Um, or else they have... Um, a, a major crime, you know, a particular unit in each of the states is a little bit different. And they come in and they go in along one line. So they won't all walk in from different directions, you know, they just make a line and all the police go in on, on one line. So you have a photographer, you have somebody who's recording everything. Um, and then, of course, it depends. In Western Australia, the pathologists go out there fairly early. In uh, the UK, you'll find that other kinds of scientists will go in first and pathologists away down the line and it just just depends on the protocol um, but yes there's photographs taken uh, measurements taken uh, a body is it's very is, is not not removed <laughs> immediately now in your book um, a, a, a grain of truth you take us through the story of one particular crime that you got involved with can you tell us about how you got involved and what happened well, um, the body of uh, Samantha Hall was found... Well, actually, she was Samantha Bodsworth, but in my book I, I call her Hall because that's what the family um, wanted. That was their family name. She was about to change it back. Uh, it was found in, in Noosa Woods, which is uh, the local people in Noosa call the Spit, and uh, that she had nothing with her to identify her, um, and except for the, there was a tattoo on her arm that had was just two names, Michael and um, Michael and Corey, who happened to be her two two sons. Um, what happened was they, they called in the botanist, and, and I won't go through the whole story right here, but I actually got involved only a few months later, not at the time of the, the crime. Now, Samantha's body was found covered in juvenile flowering wattle um, plants, and there was wattle flowering all around her. So what they found, they found her car in Gympie and in the car was uh, a wattle flower on the floor in the driver's side and there was one attached to the, the bump that on the number plate at the back. And there were no, no, plant, no wattles flowering in, in Gympie at the time and so they thought, well, perhaps her car had been used to drive her to, um, to Noosa. And so... They called in um, the person that I call uh, Byron Steele in in my book, to who happened to be um, was funded by the police to to do a forensic botany um, a PhD, and 
friend, but unfortunately, and meant to be concentrating on pollen, unfortunately she didn't have very good supervision and really didn't know too much about pollen. And she knew that I, he, sorry, he knew that I did um, electron microscopy and, and what he had to do was to try and tell the difference between the two types of acacia that were at the crime scene. And uh, that was acacia longifolia sophorae and, and acacia uh, saligna. And, and he couldn't, just looking down at the microscope, had no idea. And he, he suggested to police that they use me to, 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 to do SEM. But when I, I had a look at them, it was really easy to tell the difference in light microscopy, and so that's where it went from there. But obviously I did a lot more. I worked on his clothes, uh, worked on samples from that had been vacuumed from the car seat and the floor and so on. So, And on the two, two um, bottle flowers that were found in the car, what I had to do was match them up with um, the species that... Uh, were at the crime scene and check out the acacia pollen from the acacia that were actually growing in Gympie and see where the flowers had actually come from. And Lynn, was this the first time that anyone had really looked closely at the pollen characteristics of these two species? Um, I don't think they'd, they'd been done before, no. I couldn't find anything about them. I mean, the thing is in Australia, we just had so many plants over here in Western Australia compared to other parts of the world that we don't know much about the pollen of, of the majority of it. So it's not like you can just go to a, a website somewhere and pick up what what acacia uh, pollen... Well, we know what acacia pollen looks like, but particular species. Mm. So they, they vary quite a bit, do they? And are they in like a particular pollen species is <coughs> unique in its... Uh, a wattle species is unique in its pollen, sorry? Well, some, some wattle it's a little bit difficult to tell, but with Sophorae and Selegna and the, 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 um, the species that were growing in Gympie, it was really easy to tell the difference between them. Um, they, wattle pollen's got 16 or 12 individual monads, single pollen grains, um, all stuck together in what we call a polyad. And that, you get polyads and tetrads, but usually pollen is, is, is singular, but, in acacia, it, it all sort of sticks together, and it has patterning on the surface of the the polyads of the monads, and it's that patterning that enabled me to tell the difference between um, all of them, and and also size as well. But they were quite quite different. But you know, the work that I've done since, uh, looking at some some of the acacia that I've looked at, it it is. Well, you can tell the difference if you put them on the SEM and if you do lots of measurements, you can often so, see that the size and things are a bit different. But and, and these it, ones were, yeah. And SEM being a, a scanning tunneling oh, electron scanning microscope. scanning electron microscope, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> microscopy uh, jargon. So what's the main thing that the police were looking for from you? What did they want to know? They wanted to know if the car had been in Noosa and if the person they suspected had driven the car had been in the car and in Noosa. So, and so was the crime scene and the location of the body the same? The crime scene was they found was actually in Gympie. He killed her in her home in Gympie, cleaned her up um, and changed her clothes and put her in the front seat of the car and stuck a hat on her, a little peaked hat, drove around town so people could see that he was with her and... Uh, be, you know, to, 
for some reason. It was all very, very planned. And um, then he drove it to Noosa. So I think of this pollen evidence and having read your book as being like a, a trail of footprints to show where an object or a person or a body right. had been. Yeah. And so you get a kind of a profile or a map perhaps of, uh, of where that had been. How reliable is it? I mean, what sort of degree of accuracy are you going to get out of that picture? Well, it, it all depends on whether the pollen that you get is confined to certain plants that grow in a particular area. It's also the combination of plants. I mean, obviously, if somebody was... Um, if something, if if let's say some cannabis was grown here and then it was found in uh, in Canberra, and I was to analyse the can- cannabis, I'd be able to tell fairly easily that it didn't come from that it came from here rather than from there because of the different plants that are growing there. So um, it can. D- it's all to do with the distribution of plants and the combination of plants that are growing at a particular site. I mean, there was one case where I was asked to find out if a car had had been in the country. It was a car that the owner said had only ever been in the metropolitan area. And I was able to say which road it had gone along because <laughs> of the plant that was the, the pollen that was in the radiator. So, um, yeah. So that's interesting. You can almost go back in a time machine and watch what happened. Now, just a reminder, you're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Community Radio 2XX. My name is Rod. Special guest today, Dr. Lynn Milne, author of A Grain of Truth, and we're talking about pollen and forensics today. And, Lynn, I wanted to ask you a more specific question about pollen, which is rather dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. In your book, you beautifully described how it was possible to show that the pollen um, hadn't sort of just blown into the car, but mm. in fact it must have been carried there because of the nature of of wattle pollen. It's very mm. heavy. It's not wind dispersed. That's right. Normally it's transferred from uh, plant to plant or flower to flower by insects or birds, yeah. things like that. Mm. Um, and I was going, yes, what a beautiful description <laughs> of why people this is um, can't really get allergic reactions to wattle pollen. Um, a lot of people don't realise how heavy wattle pollen is yeah, and it, it doesn't float around in the air. No, very, very rare. If it does, you'd have to have a fairly big wind. Um, I think with the, the allergy type thing, you know, I work with immunologists as well and they say that when there's a thunderstorm or whatever, the wattle pollen just supposedly explodes and, and releases allergens and that's where people who have uh, allergy to... Bottles, that's, that's how they, they think it happens. I mean, it sounds crazy, but that's, that's what they say. Gee whiz, that's the first time I've heard that. Yeah, well, I first heard it when I was giving a talk to a whole pile of immunologists, and I thought, well, I don't know anything about that. So, yes, I did go back and, and do a bit of reading and found that there are people who write papers about this thing. So, yeah. Oh, thank you. I'll follow that up because yeah. for years we've been telling we people from the Society for Growing Australian Plants, myself, others, that in fact um, it's just too heavy to float around, that in fact it's well, exotic species, very fine pollen species that oh, goes yeah. up people's noses. They see the water yeah. pollen, but what goes up their noses is ash and grass pollen. Yeah, that's right. Well, often people think that because their wattle flower, wattle tree in the front garden is flowering at this time and this is the time that they have you know, a severe allergic reaction. They think it's the wattle, but in fact it's usually the grass that's growing, you know. 
some 20 kilometres away. And there's, of course, there's a quite a strong scent of a water plant too, isn't it? Which isn't necessarily oh. the pollen, is that right? That's a question uh, maybe for you, one, for you I Suzette. Think, I, think, I think that's a question for Suzette. Well, I, well, just from my reading, I know that some people are sensitive to perfume, not necessarily yeah. allergic to the, the pollen, and so that's some right. people have a sensitivity to any strong perfume. And so that might be a problem. But yes, it was just wonderful reading your description in the book um, about how uh, describing the nature of acacia pollen and how, in fact, because it was, uh, it had to be transported into the car by either um, uh, the person who was killed or the killer. That's right. Um, You just can't get that much bottle pollen. Uh, When the case was coming up, there was another palynologist employed and, and there was going, the questions that were going to be asked was, um, you know, uh, if the window had been open and there'd been a, a, a big, you know, rain, a uh, big storm, then of course wattle pollen would go in there. And my thing was, well, you know, if I was going to find some wattle pollen in there, I would expect that there would be a lot of other pollen that normally flies through the air, but in actual fact, there was. Um, considerable amount of wattle pollen and hardly any of the others so there's absolutely no way it got in there by being blown in uh-huh. Well, well, who who would have thought that a tiny thing like pottle, uh, pottle? <laughs> Where did I get that word from? Wattle pollen. I think I might call it wattle. Uh, <laughs> here you go. That probably means we should break for a track. Here, uh, <laughs> here this is a hallelujah because being a wonderfully sensitive track. And uh, Leonard Cohen and uh, the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. We'll be back in a moment talking more about pollen and forensics and other stuff like that. Here we go. Well, I want to turn the conversation a little more to to the personal. As someone who's worked as a scientist for a number of years, um, I found one of the attractions, initial attractions of doing science, was I felt that I didn't have to worry about people. I could just concentrate on the trees. Of course, I was to discover that, in fact, you can't ignore people, uh, your relationships with your colleagues, the, the, your, your clients, the people for whom your uh, science is intended, it's all about people. And this was an interesting aspect of your book, I thought, Lynn. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you found um, your relationships with people sort of impinged more on your science than you had originally found? Yeah, it, it, it's very interesting. I, I think when you're a scientist, it's very easy just to hide away in your lab and, and like I spent, I, I think I spent half a year sitting in the, uh, in front of an electron microscope and I even had some of my clothes in there in the room so it became home and so you're not really talking to anybody and then with forensic science you, you get given samples, you know, I, I, I get to see bodies on videos in Western Australia, they don't take. I don't go out to the crime scene until after the body's gone. Um, but you have a sample, and that sample you analyse and and you do what you have to do. And you don't actually think about the people that are involved in it, the the victims, the family of the victim, and the person who who committed the crime and their family. This is not something that comes into you know your working life really. But um, what I found with, with uh, the story of Samantha Hall uh, that I write about in my book, A Grain of Truth, 
is that I had absolutely no contact with the family. I think perhaps when we were at the committal, I I passed by her sister. Uh, but aside from that, you know, you don't think of the human thing. I had to go in there. It was my first time in court, and I'm more worried about my science than anything. And then, of course, I find that this is my, my first encounter with somebody who's been a, accused of, of a crime that I'm trying to help solve. Well, you, you sit opposite, well, in the court up at, um, on the, on the, Gold, on the uh, Sunshine Coast, uh, the, the, the witness is directly facing the accused who's sitting in a little box with a glass thing in front of them. Mm. I and believe it was six years um, it, after you worked on that pollen that you actually met it was. It was the members of, of the victim's family. Yeah, I was, I was actually asked to um, write the book and, and use this, this um, case and I was very loath to actually contact the family because I figured they'd probably gone through too much and I'm a bit, a bit of a wolf when it comes to approaching things like that. So eventually, you know, the New Holland had advanced me a small amount of money and I had produced nothing after a year apart from the first chapter and, and I'd had to give the money back, which I couldn't afford to do, or I had to do something. So I managed to get a free ride to uh, Sydney on, on another matter and then managed to get enough money out of New Holland to get me up to up to Brisbane and I organised to see Paul Zon who was the arresting officer and I thought well I could chat to him more about the case, go to the crime scene, look around, take some photos, the, the photos that did eventually turn up in my book and ask Paul to ask the family if they minded if I used the case and if so would they like me to change the name, would they like me to change the location. Anyway Paul, I got up there and I phone Paul and only to find that he'd just been in court and he was so sick he had to go home. So I oh, here I have, I have my toothbrush and everything and I'm going up to Noosa. So I thought, well, I'll still go and I'll go to the crime scene. So I took some photos and things and I came across this little cross right where in the car park, on the edge of the car park where the body was found. And it had on it a little inscription that said something like, Sam, we'll never forget you. Michael, Corey, Mum and Dad. And it was only then that it, it came to me that there's this whole human story um, there. And I, I got the shivers. Mm. I really did. And, and I was there for another hour or so just walking around taking photos. And I was in a daze. It was just really, really strange. And then I, I, I went back and I, I booked into a hotel and I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to stay the night and I'm going to sit down and, you know, just have a, have a nice meal, glass of wine. Um, in, in Noosa and yeah, then go back to Brisbane the next day and then I had this urge I thought I wonder why he he left Samantha's body in Noosa why hadn't he disposed of her body along the way between Gympie and Noosa where there's sort of like rainforest stuff and I thought I need to know this so I thought well I found the road to Gympie and I thought well just drive halfway and, and just see what the story is Anyway, I, I got so involved in my own thoughts along the way, you know, like it, it suddenly dawned on me that he'd planned this. He wanted her body to be found. And I ended up in Gympie and I thought, I don't have a map. So I ended up driving around the scenic drive and then there was this sign that said, um, off to this hotel. And I thought, well, that hotel was something to do with the, the, the crime. 
And so I went in and, and I wanted to find the Woolworths car park where uh, the um, Samantha's de facto who killed her, where his car was found. So I, I went into the bottle shop there and I said to the guy, look, I was wondering if you could tell me where Woolworths is and the car park and everything. So he gave me some directions and I started to walk away and I thought, no, I'm going to ask, mm. me being a wuss. Um, I went back and I took a deep breath and I said, I'm actually doing some research on a murder case. Um, it was the Samantha Bodsworth case. Do you know anything about it? And he sort of shifted a little bit and looked down at the ground and he, he didn't really want to say anything. And I said, I actually worked on the case. You know, they used my evidence to arrest him. And he said, you're the porn lady. And I said, <laughs> well, well, yeah. <laughs> he said, oh, my wife was her best friend. Oh, he said, you must meet the parents. And I said, look, I really don't want to disturb them. You know, it's, it's, they've had enough trauma. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll think about it later. Maybe when I get back to Perth, I'll, I'll give them a call. So they gave me, I gave him my phone number, my mobile number, and he gave me their phone number. And I, I took off for a little drive. And ten minutes later, I got a phone call from him, this guy called Dave. And he said, they're waiting for you. You've got to go and meet them now. So oh. um, it was like four o'clock in the afternoon and I went along this dusty little dirt road to about 17k and I was in tears by the time I got there. It was just unreal. I felt like I was going to meet my family, my family. Um, it was just the most amazing experience. And from yeah. then on, I've had this relationship with the family. So I, I gather what I would imagine that... Um a certain amount of disassociation from the crime itself must make things a little bit easier. Do you f find that it affects your feelings about humanity to see what is a pretty dark side of us? Does it? Do you look at things differently after having been involved with these sorts of things? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a fairly easygoing person. You know, I don't hold grudges. I, I don't hate anybody. But um, I think after this, I have very, very strong feelings about some things um, I worked on a rape case and, and the little girl and, and the guy was acquitted and he's uh, just an absolute monster and he's thankfully back um, in jail but um, and the little girl who was the the victim the claimant uh, died a, a month or so later you know and I just mm. was so angry um, it's, it's not to say I get angry at the law as well because it's not all about justice, unfortunately. It must be difficult for the police involved as well. I mean, to see this... I mean, you see it occasionally, I gather, but to see it on an almost weekly basis or monthly basis must be pretty mm. tough for them. Oh, really, really tough, yeah. Um, these guys these guys are amazing. I, I've taught quite a lot of police. In, I, I used to work at the Centre for Forensic Science at UWA, and uh, we had quite a lot of police go mm. through there, and you get to know them quite well, and what they go through is pretty horrendous. Lynn, do you feel um, at any personal risk from playing this role in the solving of crimes? Um, I do a bit. <laughs> uh, but then you have to stop and think that the police who deal with these are probably at much greater risk and they take a much greater risk than I do. Hmm. Um, there was a, a, a case where <clears throat> here in Western Australia that I was working on and I had to get a botanist to come with me and, and I had a I have a, um, a postgrad student who's a mature aged person and she came along 
uh, to some of the meetings and, and the crime scenes and things. And, and her initial reaction was she didn't want to give a statement or anything because she was worried of, of you know, retribution in a sense. And, and my thing was, well, the police are out there a whole lot more than we are, and that they're the ones that are, uh, are at greater risk than we are. Mm. But, I, but I still do have a silent number, phone number.